Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. IFB culture is based so much on performance-based religion. Like it, it literally is about image. And I think the word they'll often use is your testimony, the way, mm-hmm. the way you know, you're being seen or viewed. But really what it is, it's it's your performance. As long as you're hitting these particular performance points, you know, dressing this way, using this type of music, having these particular standards, you know, whatever the case may be, as long as you're hitting those things and you're performing, then your acceptance is based on that performance. But what's interesting about that is then your relationship is based entirely on your image, not based on who you are as a person. And so what happens in is in a lot of IFB churches, there are not deep, relationships. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Josh Irmler on the show. I have a lot of guests who I meet for the first time like a week or two before we hit record, Uh, but we have a lot of history. Uh, Met in 2010 at Camp Calvary, the (laughs) ill-fated Camp Calvary. Um, We got to work in the same building for like two or three years. Uh, You hosted my, or hosted, officiated my wedding. Uh, So we've got some, we got some history together uh, and I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit about the uh, the Independent Baptist Movement. Yeah, we're looking forward to it, Eric. Thank you so much for having me on. I've enjoyed the podcasts that I've been able to listen to up to this point and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Well, I wanted to bring you on specifically because I I came into your kind of realm uh, pretty, I mean, pretty much fresh out of like the more hardcore independent Baptist movement. And I had a lot of baggage and I've gotten into that in previous episodes and a lot of, you know, pretty negative things I was trying to work through and figure out where I stood, what I believed. And, you know, coming into ambassador, which is now Fresno church. um, Some of the things you were saying just about the gospel itself was pretty, pretty radical. So I definitely want to dive into a lot of that, but, 
before we do that, I want to give context about who you are. So you grew up in a pastor's home. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were part of the IFB world, but he was still acted pretty independently of it. But uh, what was childhood like and how did that kind of shape your your trajectory as you were growing up? Well, I grew up, um, you know, pastor's home. Uh, when I was born, uh, my dad was on staff for Jack Schreiber at North Valley Baptist Church. And so that would have been the first, you know, five, six years of my life. I went to uh, elementary school there uh, until my dad moved uh, to his next church. But that's where a lot of those connections would have been made uh, with Paul Chapel. Uh, Jack Treber, some of these, you know, names that maybe some of your listeners would be familiar with. And so, but my dad, I would say, was very um, non-political. So even though uh, they would have had Jack Hiles in to speak, or, you know, I I know that, uh, you know, uh, Dave Hiles came in to speak at youth conferences uh, there at North Valley back in the day. Uh, my dad wasn't as enamored with kind of the political element of it and right. really was more of an independent spirit. And so once he left North Valley, we kind of were on an island to ourselves. So while we're technically part of the IFB, Independent Baptist Movement, um, for most of the years of growing up, we were kind of just doing our own thing. So we'd have a lot of the typical standards uh, or a lot of the typical kind of um, methodologies that the IFB churches would have. But as far as being highly connected with these different, you know, mega movers and shakers of the movement, we were kind of removed for some of that. And, and honestly, I think for me, that was probably for the best, you know, right. uh, from the standpoint of, we, you know, just not getting sucked in to, to a lot of that for those formative years. And then when I went to uh, Bible college he, at West Coast Baptist College, uh, that's kind of when I I was kind of reintroduced to some of that right. world, uh, you know, as a college student and, and, you know, kind of from there, then going on staff uh, at Lancaster Baptist for several years and, and then kind of being reintroduced kind of in an intense way into that IFB culture, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff. But uh, by and large, I would say, you know, growing up was fairly kind of just even keel, you know, there wasn't right. anything super crazy other than maybe some of the standard type things, yeah. you know, I mean, when it came to, you know, music philosophy, my father was uber, uber traditional uh, when it came to, you know, kind of music we were allowed to listen to growing up, you know, it wasn't even just like the like secular music was off you know, uh, you know, things that we weren't supposed to listen to. It was like, there was even certain Christian music that we weren't, you know, uh, allowed to listen to. So it was just really, really traditional, really conservative, you know, when it came to things like, you know, attending movie theaters. The, The one thing I will say about my dad that I really did respect was the fact that he was consistent. And that was something that started to get a little bit interesting to me as I got older is seeing so much of the inconsistencies with people's Mm. standards, so much of the inconsistency that took place with what they would say from behind the pulpit 
based on what would actually be done functionally and practically in their personal lives. Right. And that was kind of something that I started to see more and more of, you know, as I began to go through Bible college and early on in ministry, some of the political disconnects where people would do things, but they didn't really have a good reason for why. I will say with my dad, I think one of the reasons I didn't struggle a whole lot when I was younger with some of those things is because he was intellectually honest about his, you know, hmm. situation. So it wasn't like there was this, you know, kind of double standard. And I can kind of appreciate that, you know, I mean, if you're right. going to go that direction, at least, you know, go in wholeheartedly. And I, right. I respect it. I just happen to disagree with it, you know, right. and, and I don't have as much of a problem with that per se. Yeah. No, it's definitely a different thing when someone is conservative or traditional, but it's legitimately who they are versus when it's something that they're doing. You know, I always, I always say like, there's a lot of seeker sensitive, hardcore IFB churches where they're seeking people who want the high standards and things like that, where the pastor doesn't really buy that. And, you know, uh, your dad, I know him as well. And like for better or for worse, depending on how you view each position, he yep. is consistent with where yep. he's at. Exactly. Uh, and, and we disagree on a lot of things right now, you know, and I, I never really had an issue uh, with guys who just simply take a different position. Mm -hmm. I think where it gets wonky is when they take positions and then they're having to do weird things. Like on the one hand, they're, they'll say, you know, we're Bible believers, but in order then to maintain a particular standard or philosophical or methodological position, they have to take that Bible that they hold so near and dear and take it out of context and do all right. types of, you know, theological gymnastics in order to make that Bible that they claim is final authority and make it say the things that they want it to say in order to, you know, prop up our particular standard or a particular ethic or something like that. To me, that's really where a lot of the IFB movement kind of really started to kind of wear on me a little bit was mm -hmm. that hypocrisy that came from, from that. And so that it was probably something that began to, you know, start our journey in the direction that we, we eventually moved to. Right. Well, it sounds like you're, it sounds like you're saying that your early years felt pretty positive and you were, you know, you felt totally cool with the movie. And that's normal. I think when you're born into it, because what are you comparing it to? There is no before and after. Um, but like you said, some things start to grade against you. You start noticing some things you mentioned before we recorded, there wasn't a massive thing that happened that shook you out of it. It was mm -hmm. that slow kind of evolution, I guess you could say. What, what was the first thing that you consciously remember saying like, oh, there's something not quite right here or there's something a little bit off? Yeah, I think I alluded to it a moment ago is this idea that there are those in evangelicalism and I think most religious slash you know, evangelical Christians would say that the Bible is something that is going to inform both of their beliefs and practices and things. And yet how cavalier so many of those same churches were with how they navigated texts, it just literally seemed like hypocrisy to me. You know, mm. when you're blatantly just even as a Bible college student where you don't even have that much Bible understanding at that point, you have just very basic elementary understanding of the Bible. And you're already sensing how many people are taking things out of context 
you know, superimposing their own agendas, their own worldviews onto it. And I, I think that is where that started. It's like, either you have to choose one, either you're going to say that the Bible is a final authority or it's not. And, you know, obviously there's a huge debate on just that issue, right? You know, whether it is or isn't. But then beyond that, if you're going to come to a position where you say it is, and then not have the intellectual honesty to stay consistent with that position. I think that's kind of where it started for me is just like, man, uh, you can't, you know, have your cake and eat it too on that one. You can't say that the Bible is, you know, you know, everything, you know, and all this. And then at the same time, then, you know, redefining everything to be what, you know, you want it to say, you know, things like that. It's just was, it was, it was almost humorous the way in which the scriptures got misinterpreted or reinterpreted in order to make it say the most bizarre kind of like outlandish type things. And even just an elementary understanding of basic hermeneutics, a basic biblical interpretation would be like, that's not what it's saying. But I think in the IFB movement, while they would say, you know, the Bible was this important thing, the reality is functionally, it just wasn't, you know, there was this political agenda that was, you know, this high priority in a lot of these environments. And so they were put in this position where they would have to make the Bible say things that was consistent with their brand, if you want to call it that, that was consistent with their agenda if you want to call it that or just their political persuasion and and that for me enough of those is kind of like you know a death by a thousand cuts you just that starts happening again and again and again and again and you're just kind of like uh i'm not really sure that whatever this movement is is something that i necessarily want to be a part of in that way you know and so that's that's probably where a lot of it began. And and then I would say, second of all, I have never been a huge, and this is probably a personality thing. I've I've never really been big into the whole personality cult of just politics of it all. And I think that might be indicative of our generation. You know, I think there might've been maybe among, you know, boomers or something like that. They wanted to be a part of this big, you know, political machine or whatever. And I think millennials and, and stuff were just a little less enamored by, you know, the politics of it all. And so because of that, anytime I would see politicking happen within the IFB movement, it just, for my personality, just rubbed me the wrong way. It just was kind of like, uh, just, it just was weird, you know? I mean, I get that they have to do that in Washington and that that's a thing that politicians have to do, but to see that in this thing that was supposed to be this Jesus movement, just didn't at all resonate with what I saw in the gospels, you know, it just did not compute. And so it seems like so much, of what's happening in church world today in IFB and beyond it. Even outside of it. Yeah. yeah, Even outside just seems more like a, like these businesses that are these religious businesses of sorts. And uh, I I do make a big distinction between, you know, what is spiritual and what is religious. And I think so often within the IFB movement, it is literally more about just these religious rituals, regulations, standards, than it is about true spirituality. And because of that, you know, it just, the politicking just does not resonate at all with the spiritual part of my being. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I want to walk through kind of your path. So like college, you were noticing this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I just recently had uh, Andrew Garcia on who was at Lancaster yeah. and, and uh, everyone I've talked to from there, you know, politics is a big part of the culture there. It's a big part of the church culture. It seems like a big part of the work culture. Did, did these feelings stay pretty consistent throughout your time there? Or was it something where when you switched to the staff side, you felt like you were able to work through this stuff or talk through this stuff more? Did it, yeah. you know? I, th- I think what's interesting about a place like that, and I, I think where I've always, I have two thoughts on that. One is every organization is made up of people. And so yeah. in organization made up of people, you get some really good people in those yeah. organizations. And then you have some people who are more, maybe what we call rotten apples in those organizations. <laughs> right. And then like all of us, right? Like we all are this weird compilation of idiosyncrasies and I don't want to say good and bad, but we just, it's all of it. And so Mm -hmm. when you come into these organizations, there's just this compilation of all of that. You got people who, you know, what has the things that were used to grow the organization, oftentimes it's just in the one hand, it's ego or it is, skill sets that when applied to a religious church world just feel weird, you know? And, and so it's like, Oh, these are great qualities maybe within, you know, a fortune 500 company, Mm -hmm. or this is a great quality if you were a politician, but it just doesn't sit the same way when it's somebody who is supposed to be like this shepherd or this pastor, it, it, it hits different. And so because of that, I, I would say that I can't look at any individual and be like, oh, that, that person's just rotten in my experience. It's just, it's a combination of all of it. And, and for me, there just comes to this point where you're just kind of like, man, I, rather than just continue to put myself in that environment or instead of just coming to a place where I got really cynical or really bitter, as those things started coming up, I just started to distance myself yeah. from it more and more and more. And that was how my personality tended to deal with those things. Because at the end of the day, I am of the persuasion that even the worst things that happen to us make us into the person mm-hmm. that we become. And so it's really hard for me to look back on it with a lot of cynicism and bitterness yeah. because of the fact of like, man, I, I love my life today. I love how it all turned out. I love the journey it put me on. And so could I really, would I be where I am today? Would I be who I am today without some of those negative circumstances yeah. or, or without those negative, you know, influences that maybe weren't the best, but they had a huge impact on who I am today. So I would say that the culture there was really intense while I was there uh, on staff per se. It was a very, very intense culture that um, for me, and I'll speak for myself, it wasn't necessarily the the healthiest culture for me and my family, you know, uh, just for where it was. And so right. with that being said, you know, rather than, you know, make a big, you know, stink about it and da da da. I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna look for opportunities to kind of yeah. move through this, move past it. I think I was supposed to be there for 12 months and uh, I'd actually got offered a job there right out of college. I didn't end up taking it. I, I stepped away from there for about 18 to 24 months, actually ended up coming back uh, 
uh, on staff for Lancaster Baptist. I was going to be there for 12 months, 12 months turned to 24 months. At one point, uh, Pastor Chapel had asked if I'd sign a 10-year contract to be there. I didn't do that. And so then to 24 months turned to 36 months, you know, and then finally it was just kind of like, uh, man, uh, I really was like, I'm just heading in a different direction. And I didn't sense that where that was, was kind of aligning with where I was going. Right. Yeah. You mentioned kind of distancing yourself. And um, I mean, I think it's really, I think it's really similar to my story, not the same length of time, but for me, it was very hard. Even when I officially was out of it, you know, you find yourself always going back and you're a part of something. And there are even in, you know, negative environments or where you see the overarching philosophy might be wrong. It is those positive footholds. There's still people that I grew up with who are some of the most amazing people that I've ever known. And they're still in these places. Um, And there's still IFB pastors or IFB churches or, you know, school teachers fill in the blank. Uh, But those, that makes it harder because you're not looking at a black and white image going like, well, here's the obvious right thing. And, you know, here's the obvious wrong thing. Um, But, but you distancing yourself a little bit, you can't get much more distant than Boron, California. (laughs) So, so talk about, right. So, so talk about like taking over a church there. You're, you kind of, for the first time, you're not on someone's staff, you're pastoring and you're the one that people are looking to for some kind of leadership. Uh, what what did you do in that time? Because you have these questions in your mind. You've been trained a very specific way in how to operate a church. Like, how, where did you find yourself the first time you're like, oh, I'm the pastor of this church? Yeah, I actually think that's a big part of it because in an IFB culture, it is so much about just you know, do what you're told. That's the culture. Like it's very like there's the pastoral authority. And so because that's just primed into you, you're not really thinking from a perspective of you're, you're really not taught like necessarily, you know, how to think you're taught what to think. And so the first time you become a pastor is this first time where you're like, okay, it's not just what I'm supposed to be doing. It's like, why am I doing this? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, am I just regurgitating everything I've been told? And so pastoring for the first time was this first environment where I wasn't in a situation where I was just supposed to go through the motions and do what somebody was telling me to do, because that's kind of what you're primed to do. And that's where a lot of those questions came up. So that first pastorate was kind of starting to plant the seeds of some of those questions as to why do we do this and why do we do that? And for, for me at that time, I mean, we're talking super basic, like, man, man, it doesn't make sense. Why are we literally not going to movie theaters to watch the exact same movie that I'm going to watch, you know, in my living room? So literally, really elementary basic things at that moment. Like why can't we use this instrument or why is it that this song? And so I have all these questions, but I will say it probably wasn't until I took over my second pastorate that I was there long enough to start fleshing all of that out. Yeah. And, and, and that's where, when I came to Fresno uh, after being at Lancaster for several years, where there was enough time now where I wasn't just asking the questions in my head, but now I'm forced into a situation because I'm there long enough to mm-hmm. now, it, you know, you get so many people asking you these questions. You're taking new church members to these conferences that these guys are speaking at. And those new converts are now asking you questions and it's just getting really confusing, you know, as to trying to give them solid answers that really 
even for those of us who, you know, believe the Bible, we weren't even, we didn't even have good answers from them from the Bible. Like it's right. just like, you know, let alone a good, there was no good logical answer, you know? And yeah. so it was just, it got really, really kind of just like really confusing for a while. Just like, what, what are we going to do with this thing? And I, I think that's that, being here in Fresno, having time, that's really where a lot of the changes started to kind of flesh out, you know, um, mm. in, in regards to the way what people probably saw on a surface with, you know, changes that were taking place uh, that we were making here in Fresno. Yeah, it was a pretty rapid, I mean, as far as organizations go, it was a pretty rapid change. Because I remember visiting the church in 2000 and I want to say 12 it was on the old property so it was yeah. probably 2011 or 12. it was right at the end of yeah. the time there and it was still very very traditional it it felt i mean it felt very much like a lancaster service but a lot smaller exactly. yeah. um and um but then over the next couple of years i would say three to four years there was a drastic shift in at least appearances and, and people definitely commented on that. We could talk about that, but there were people who recognized that when they would tune into live streams or see pictures and they would see like, Oh, there's a drum set or, Oh, you know, he's not wearing a tie. Like all those little dumb things that really mean nothing that people were stressed about. Ambassador Baptist church, Fresno, California, also known, mostly known as Fresno church. It was pastored by Mark Irmler until 2007. He teaches at West Coast. He's promoted on Paul Chapel's Ministry 127 blog. In 2007, the church was turned over to his son Joshua. Joshua's a graduate of West Coast. In last year in May, he tweeted his thanks to Paul Chapel and gave and put a picture up there of his graduation service. Under Joshua's leadership, Ambassador Fresno Church has become a full-blown contemporary praise program and philosophy, full-blown charismatic style. And that's what West Coast needs to do. If you're going to use that music, do something. Of course, that's a charismatic thing. And Did you ever make a conscious decision like, okay, I need to start kind of course correcting? Because we're we're at this place where there's all of these you know, there's all these things set up that don't have a place here. Um, and what did that journey kind of look like over the next couple of years? So I think this is where it gets really interesting. And this is probably where it does dovetail into much of what is IFB culture. So IFB culture is really built on this, even though they call themselves independent, the reality is it's, it's not truly independent culturally now it is independent organizationally to some degree you know but when it comes to the politics when it comes to the culture it's anything but you know independent in fact i have a lot of sbc friends that in reality are much more independent you know southern baptist guys who are much more independent even though they're part of a cooperative program so the whole independent historically is a little bit kind of a misnomer because it's not as independent as maybe you know the movement would want you to believe it is and so 
the reality is I was getting into it and where it kind of started for me was this idea is this is where the gospel and my understanding of the gospel started to influence how I moved through this Hmm. is for me, the gospel being the good news. This is what Jesus Christ, he came, he comes to set us free. Right. And one of the things he sets us free from is the fear of man and the fear of what other people are going to say or what other people are going to think. And IFB culture really is able to maintain a lot of its quote unquote, you know, informal control through fear of man. You know, what are these people going to say? What are those people going to say? You know, who are you going to be able to associate with? Who's going to associate with you? They use a mechanism called second degree and third degree and fourth degree separation, which is an interesting thing to kind of talk about maybe here in a moment. But I know for me, like we were having people come to our church who played the guitar, people who played the drums, and they'd be like, hey, we really are loving, you know, uh, what we're getting here, but can we use our skills in this instrument. And I remember thinking, no, we can't. And they would be like, well, why? And the reality is I had no good reason as to why, but I just felt like if I did, all of a sudden there was this sense that it wasn't okay. And it, what that was, was this fear of what would a Bible college president think? What about this pastor who would come in and speak? I had this thought of what would this friend say or what phone calls would I get? And I went through a season where those things actually did happen for quite a while. There was probably two or three years where whether it was letters, whether it was phone calls, uh, whether it was people saying, oh, I can't speak for you anymore. You can't come speak for us anymore. Just because we were making these very basic, minimal type changes that were literally nothing, even from a biblical perspective, you know, they were yeah. like nothing changes. And I think what the gospel did was free me from the need for their approval. It was finally like this sense of, Hey, you know what? I am unconditionally loved by the God of the universe. And that is enough for me. And here's what happened. Once I was able to really find that, you know, what some people might call self esteem, what other people might call your identity in Christ. Once that kind of came to fruition, now there was no longer a filter on what would those people think or these people think. Now, when those, you know, kind of decisions came up, it was like, Oh, of course we'll use, you know, a guitar, of course we use drums because there was no longer this filter of what would the IFB brethren think, you know, that just, that kind of like went away. And I think that's kind of what was interesting about it was it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't reactive, you know, when we'd make mm-hmm. these decisions, I wasn't thinking about, Oh, what's I'm going to do this. Cause I'm this yeah. little person upset. It was just that, that lens was gone. And I think that lens is a, an important kind of control mechanism that gets used oftentimes in the IFB movement to kind of keep people in line. And once that's gone and you just have the Holy spirit, you know, just to kind of lead and say, Hey, this is where you're going. This is what you're doing, you know, within the confines of, you know, what, uh, your interpretation of scripture. Now, all of a sudden we were doing all kinds of things, you know, not out of this sense of, you know, Oh, we're really going to get back at somebody. It was just like, it just became very, it much became much more organic and natural just to, you know, just move through ministry life without having that filter of what all these other people were going to be thinking. But it's amazing how that filter really kept us in a particular methodological style for a lot of years. But the moment that there was a theological perspective that allowed that lens to be gone, that how quickly things begin to just change, you know, and it really wasn't something that I even thought about until the change became so 
evident that now we were getting these people calling us and canceling meetings, you know, and, and mm. not having me speak or whatever the case may be. And honestly, at the end of the day, um, while it was really kind of like hard to have these sense that you thought these people with your, were your friends and then all of a sudden they're not there. There's, there's this weird emotional thing that you go through when you're kind of, you know, starting to move away from that because you realize, oh, wow, these, these weren't my friends. These were just acquaintances where we had this IFB thing in common, but maybe not, you know, maybe there wasn't like this real authentic, you know, friendship there. And, and that's probably another thing that, you know, about the IFB culture that has been one of the reasons I moved away from it is that element that IFB culture is based so much on performance based religion. Like it, it literally is about image. And I think the word they'll often use is your testimony, the way, mm -hmm. the way, you know, you're being seen or viewed, but really what it is, it's, it's your performance. As long as you're hitting these particular performance points, you know, dressing this way, using this type of music, having these particular standards, you know, whatever the case may be, as long as you're hitting those things and you're performing, then your acceptance is based on that performance. But what's interesting about that is then your relationship is based entirely on your image, not based on who you are as a person. And so what happens in is in a lot of IFB churches, there are not deep relationships you know these were because people don't know each other yeah. you know i remember when we started these things called small groups which when we did them like nobody was doing them in the yeah. ifb movement it was kind yeah. of this new thing that nobody of course you know and it was this place where people could get real and raw with each other and really share where they're at and talk about their struggles and you know what they're you know where they're at on certain things and what was interesting is relationships started to form in those environments that were so much deeper than anything I'd ever experienced before. And what dawned on me was the fact that it's really tough to build a relationship when you're constantly putting on a front and you're constantly trying to say, this is who I am in right. order to maintain some type of status. And I think when you're able just to get away from that completely, I'd much rather just be like, hey, you're different than me and no, you don't do this. And maybe yes, I do this or whatever the case may be, but at least we're being real with each other because we can have a real relationship. And because of our differences, it might not be as deep as it would be with somebody else, but at least it's something real. And I think in the IFB movement, the reality is because there is so much plastic, you know, so much performance going on because it's a performance based, you know, kind of institution that it's so difficult to have deep thriving relationships yeah. with people because nobody can be real or because your entire, your entire, standing is based on all these things that you have to put on. And, and some people are really good at it. Other people are not, but it makes for, it makes it impossible to have any deep relationships. And I think for me, that was one of, that was a big impetus on making those final steps away from the movement, you know, in a, in a, in a real, you know, formal sense was just the fact that it was, it was next to impossible to have any real deep, meaningful relationships with people because you just could never really get to know them. Everybody's so guarded. Everybody's got so many, you know, filters up that it just, that it's, it's next to impossible to have anything real. Right. Yeah. And uh, I want to circle back just a few steps and you've, you've touched on this because everything that you just said is rooted in this conversation, but, uh, 
you know, when you started making these changes, you know, I was, I would laugh when I would see the comments people would make. I know it was incredibly emotional uh, and tumultuous for you. I found it humorous from the outside looking in, you know, seeing people's assumptions about why changes are being made. And I would see you, your name thrown into the hat with a lot of other people who were doing this. But one of the assumptions was that you were doing exactly what you just said. I'm changing it to get back at people. I'm changing things to be more progressive and seeker sensitive, whatever you want to say that means. Uh, You were doing it just because you had lower standards. But what I knew knowing you in person was you were making decisions because your fundamental understanding of the gospel was completely different than what it is at large. Obviously there's exceptions, but at large within the independent Baptist culture. So I really wanted to, to talk to you about what what the gospel you you knew prior to really understanding the gospel was and what the actual i i guess what the gospel is and how that had a huge you know impact on your you and your ministry no i think that's a great question i think i think growing up the gospel would have been confined just to a moment in time where somebody would accept you know, Christ is our savior. It was this, it was this moment, you know, it was like, oh, I, I heard that Jesus Christ lived, he died and he rose from the dead. And if you believe in that, that gospel, that good news, you get saved and you become a Christian and you receive the gospel. And then the gospel becomes this thing. That's almost like this little trophy that you put on your spiritual mantle because you point back to it. Like, see, I'm a Christian because I, I believe the gospel or whatever the case may be. And I guess as I've kind of grown in my understanding of scripture, I see the gospel as yes, being that, but also being the very thing that we need in order to continue um, in our spiritual, you know, transformation, our spiritual maturity. And and so I I think what happens is, and I think one of the, I think what you're getting at a little bit is the fact that when we see the gospel as just this one singular event in our lives, then all of a sudden we can detach everything else apart from the gospel. And I do think that that can get us into a lot of problems that even can become really, really terrible problems within church culture when left to itself, where when you see the gospel, the good news is not just something I need in one moment, you know, when I become a Christian, but the gospel is something that I'm needing on a regular and daily basis. I do believe it gives you some amount of mooring, uh, some type of anchor point that really has the potential to keep your own heart to, to keep the the soul of your congregation at a place where all of a sudden it keeps from going to a place that literally becomes you know horribly perverted or incredibly just like sinful or becoming to a place where it's like downright illegal in some you know cases because it's the gospel really gives it because we're seeing it as something i need every day it is something that i need regularly for my transformation i'm not disconnecting myself from it like oh it was this one moment thing and now i'm just going to lead our church and whatever feels right you know whatever my agenda is or whatever you know you know, is going to be the most pragmatic in this moment. And I I think that's one of the reasons why having that perspective of the gospel can be influential, you know, in where the culture of your church goes to. 
Right. Yeah. I remember, and it's, that was what was jaw dropping to me, you know, kind of coming into, you know, that environment and coming into a spot where, you know, cause growing up, it was very much, you know, the gospel was what we preached on the big days where visitors came. And then we had like the, yeah. the lessons the other days. And so Sunday morning was like the salvation message. Then Sunday night was like for the real meat, you know? And, and, um, I remember even even when I was at uh, I always say ambassador, but for, uh, Fresno uh, Church at the time, I remember you know being out with your brother, and it was like probably a year, maybe like a year in, or maybe like eight months, and I was like, yeah, I, lo- I love it here, I love the church. And I said, but I'm just getting frustrated because I feel like your brother is always just preaching the gospel, and it's like, what's the next? step like when's he going to get to what to do after that and and i just remember being like see this is like why we need to keep preaching this because it even then i was still processing like okay i got that that's my foundational you know situation but what steps do i take after this and totally missing the fact that the gospel is literally the foundation so everything we do comes from our renewed understanding of that truth and so it was just a really, for someone coming out of, you know, uh, that many years of being programmed that way. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, like, okay, but what minute? Do this, do this and perform here. Perform right. Here. So funny that you mentioned that. I was literally talking with a couple yesterday about that and they were mentioning the same thing. They'd be like, we've been coming for a lot of months and it just seems like you're always just talking about how the gospel informs our motivations how the gospel informs our attitudes, how the gospel informs our values, how it informs our worldview. But you're like, what about the behaviors? What about all the things we're supposed to do? And my response to that is, at the end of the day, if we're preaching the gospel to those heart issues, then eventually if it's sinking in, it'll affect our behaviors and our actions. But if I preach to all the things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do, you could do all those things but if it doesn't come from the right place in the heart, what does it matter anyways, you yeah. know? And, and then the, this is where it gets real nefarious is at the point where you're in a culture that is always preaching on what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Then you create this culture where all of a sudden, if I'm, I could start, if I wanted to, if that was the culture that was created, now I could slip in my agenda to all these, well, do this and now do this thing and now do those things. And all of a sudden I've created this culture where the pastor as the man of God now has this say in all the things you're supposed to do. Now the Holy spirit is not necessary. And this this is so such a big point, but I, I do believe in a lot of IFB churches, the pastor takes the role of the Holy spirit. And that's why there is not a lot of, at least historically, there hasn't been a lot of preaching and teaching theologically on the role of the Holy spirit because functionally uh, the pastor takes that role. And I don't want to broad brush because I don't believe that's the case in every single IFB church by any stretch of the imagination. However, in a lot of churches, functionally, you know, church members will go to the pastor and should I, should I buy this car? Or should I buy that car? You know, and should I, you know, what, you know, all these things, it's like everything they go to the pastor about. And it's like, wait a second, that's actually the role of the Holy spirit. And so, you know, the reality is I don't want that role. You know, I want to roll. I'm going to preach the gospel to heart issues, people's motivations, people's values, people's worldviews. And then if, if it's, if it's coming through, then that's going to affect their behaviors. And to be honest, how the Holy spirit leads one person's behavior as opposed to another per- person's behavior might be a little bit different, you know, and I don't actually 
feel this need to stress over that per se, you know, in ways that I know some other people feel that, you know, that compulsion to really, you know, um, maybe control people's lives and their behavior and, and kind of how those things are playing out. Because I really believe if, if the Holy Spirit is able to work on those values, those motivations, those worldviews, the other stuff kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a big, it was a big perspective shift. It had a lot of practical ramifications and a lot of which just, like you said, it stemmed out of natural progress and you know you have certain members that are gifted yeah. so the shape of a service might look differently you have different you know a different context you know we talk about missionaries adapting that you know some people aren't even okay with this but missionaries adapt to their field in a different country you're adapting you know fresno is a different culture than the bay area and the bay area is a different culture than you know minnesota it's it's all you have to adapt somewhat um but i i'm curious as you made these progressions, obviously you're not trying to be vindictive and you're not trying to hurt anyone, betray anyone, you know, fail anybody. You're not trying to do all of those things, but it, like you said, it had to be difficult having lifelong mentors, friends starting to pull themselves away from you. How did you navigate that? And maybe even in your own family, uh, how did you navigate these very strong differences kind of coming to a head? You know, it was, it was difficult emotionally speaking, because these are like lifelong friends, you know, and things. I I remember on one occasion, a good friend of mine, we had gotten out to lunch. And so I took a picture of us and I posted it online on my Facebook page. And a few hours later, you know, getting the request, Hey, would you pull that picture down? I don't want to be associated with you publicly. Like on the one hand, I was like, okay, fine, whatever. And on the other hand, I'm kind of like, one, it's hard that that would happen because it's a good friend. And on the other hand, it's like, I don't understand why will you associate with me in private, but you won't associate with me in public. And to me, that seemed like just more of this, you know, kind of weird hypocrisy, this weird world, this politicking that you had to do in order to maintain your standing, you know, in this culture. And, and so it just further kind of just, you know, reminded me of why that isn't necessarily something I wanted to maintain, but it, it, it was tough. You know, there's no doubt about it because, you know, people will say things, you know, there's a lot of this, well, we'll figure out, we'll see where this all takes. And, and to be honest, to some degree, you know, but with where it's ended up, some people would be like, see, we told you this is where it was all going to end up. Because at this point, you know, we would, in a lot of ways, just be, you know, non-denominational, you know, in, in our you know, formality, you know, and stuff like that. So maybe some people five years ago, you know, they were right. Like, this is where it was going to take you. But I do believe it's, it's a very healthy place, but in the process, it was, it was just painful. I don't don't know how else to say it. I was talking to our associate pastor today. I was talking about those 18 months. It was like 18 months that I'm going through counseling therapy, you know, I'm going through an identity crisis, you know, because I'm doing all these things that I really feel are right and everybody who I look up to is saying, you're, you're not everybody, but so many people I'm looking up to are saying, you know, you're doing this wrong. This is not healthy. This is not right. That just plays with your identity in some crazy ways when you're like so strongly, even from a biblical perspective in the way I'm ter- interpreting scripture, following the spirit, feeling like it's a healthy good thing. And then these people who you respect and admire telling you it's a wrong thing. 
that it's like, what do you do with that? And so there was a, just a lot of intense emotions, you know, that kind of went through, you know, those times. And, and then sometimes with family, it's just like you agree to disagree and just try to, you know, uh, love each other as much as you can through the process, you know, and it's just, it's, it's awkward, you know, there's like no other way. Like people will ask me all the time, well, how do I do this without any collateral damage? And I'm like, I can help you know how to do it. I can't help you know how to do it with, you know, not, you know, messing up the apple cart like that. I just don't know because that wasn't my experience. So I know I have a lot of pastors who listen to the show, yeah. uh, some of whom have reached out to me and don't want people knowing they listen yeah. to the show. Uh, but there's a lot of people who, um, there's a lot of people who listen who are, you know, in the spot you found yourself. They're trying to navigate their church, you know, and we talk kind of macro with like the mentor relationships, the family, but on kind of the micro level, when you're trying to take a congregation that's been taught one way for, in your, in your case, I mean, it was an existing church. It wasn't from the ground up. You have a lot of people who were probably further embedded and entrenched in IFB philosophy than you were taking it over. Um, how do you, obviously you don't want to just come into a church and change everything and kick all those people out. How did you go about navigating that transition and making it where, you know, you could really bring as many people along with you on that journey instead of yeah. just saying like, we're not a church for you anymore. We're a church for a different type of person. Yeah. Cause I've seen a lot of guys take that approach and you know what? God might lead some people to do that. And if that's what God leads somebody to do, I'm not going to argue with them. Uh, however, I will say for us, it was just a slow process. I know from the outside, it seemed very fast but for us it's the process that started in 2012 and for us it got completed in 2020 with the you know name change the constitution change those final changes and in the process i've told people i literally don't know of a church that's gone through as many um revitalization transformation you know uh campaigns as we have i mean there's whether it comes to you know music philosophy whether it was even on some regards theology because there's some theological shifts we've made as a church um you know when it comes to things like translation issues name change uh just even you know moving campuses like we have been through every conceivable shift that a church could make and uh, for those that were around in the early days the reality is we were so uber traditional conservative you know that it was just like to see where we come through today. Even my friends who know me now, every once in a while will come across a picture from 10 years ago and they'll be like, what in the world? Like, like how does this even happen? Yeah. And uh, I've had, you know, people who have said it's really difficult to transition a church and it, it kind of is. And so what I would really say is it, it really is more about building a new church faster than the old church dies. And I know that sounds mm. a little cynical, um, and it's not that I would try to do that, or I think that's a good mission to have, but it's just functionally the way it works out. Like, it's like you're building this other church over the, the church that was, and as you're building around it, the church that was just slowly dies to the point that maybe this Sunday, we might have had five people there this week, you know, that were there you know, 15 years ago. And we're, we're a church that runs several hundred, you know, uh, members and things like that. So 
the reality is I don't know that you really transition as much as you would like more. So you're just trying to, you know, see something grow healthy while that, which maybe isn't so healthy, just kind of dies, you know, it's own kind of death, you know? Right. So I know it's, it's a morbid as, answer. Yeah. <laughs> but no. yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I know I'm saying it, it sounds just a little morbid, but it's just been, that's, that's been, the process that I've seen take place. Well, and to give some more credit though, where credit's due, I think it also speaks to the environment that you don't have. I, I'm more and more convinced, you may disagree with me on this. I don't think that many churches should have lifers. Um, I think that there's a lot of, you know, churches should be seasonal for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, we're both friends with Travis Chapel, um, and he yeah. does a lot in the business space. But one thing he always yeah. talks about um, being like a pet peeve of his with leadership is when your leaders are scared to equip people with enough tools that they could leave and have a better life than what you're currently offering them um, or have a better yeah. church environment or leadership environment than they have. And one thing I think that your, uh, your ministry really did well, and I'm one of these examples, is it was a very vital part of my growth for two, three years. And then I was moved in different directions and I still, those tools are still there. I still have all these things that it helped me develop and I didn't leave over any kind of ill will or, or bitterness or anything like that. And sometimes I'm like, man, I wish that Fresno church was in Henderson and not uh, Fresno, but you know, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I think there's a lot of people who've left who were just equipped and for whatever they needed for their growth, God put them in some different place. Um, and so I, I, I swear to, I wanted to frame your thing. Cause I, I know it's, I know it can look like, Oh, well, there's only five people left, but I even know some of the names I'm thinking of. I'm like, well, they're, they were yeah. equipped to launch. And I think that's yeah. such a cool, that's such a cool thing for a church to be able to do. And, and we do talk in that phrase a lot. Like oftentimes the phrase will get used in a lot of different churches that a church is a hospital. And mm. I think that's really, really good. It's a place where you go when you have particular needs. And I think what gets really weird is if there's this sense that everybody who comes has to stay. And so as yeah. a leader, I kind of guard myself from that. Like in a hospital, yes, you need some doctors, you need some nurses, you need some people who are going to stick around mm-hmm. to serve those people who are hurting. But if you have this mentality that every hurting person who comes in, you've got to chain them to the hospital bed <laughs> and keep a prisoner right. there for the rest of their life, it's going to create this weird culture in your church because it's going to, it's good. It's a scarcity mentality of I've got to keep everybody here rather than recognizing, no, we're a hospital and people are going to come in. They're going to get healthy. And in a normal hospital, when somebody gets healthy, the doctor's like, Hey, you're checked out of here. You can move on. You've got other things you've got to get to and other places you've got to go. And I think by having that understanding and having that perspective, it just frees up leadership to say, Hey, yes, yeah, some people are going to come along. They're going to stay. They're going to be like, you know what? This is kind of cool. I want to kind of become a nurse or a doctor, or a surgeon that helps hurting people as they're on their journey. But not every hurting person who goes to the emergency room at Fresno Community Hospital is going to become a doctor or a nurse, you know, or a surgeon or something. Some are just there 
to get some help for a little while. And when they're, when they're better, they're going to move on to other yeah. things. And the hospital recognizes that's the goal. That's the win. And yeah. I think if more church leaders had that perspective, they wouldn't have to institute a lot of the weird control mechanisms to keep everybody staying to where they're just building this, you know, a kingdom unto themselves yeah. and just recognizing it. So there's a lot of people who come, there's a lot of people who leave and I'm here to help people as they need it, as they want it. And when they leave, that's, that's okay. You know, I don't, I mean, when you, when you moved on, I don't think there was any like, you know, us, you know, calling you to some back office, you know, trying to use, you know, scripture out of context. That's my next episode. Like, We're going to cover that. <laughs> this, is, this is why it's God's will for you to stay in Fresno. Sure. Well, to, to bread. Well, it's like you said, it's that man, it's kind of that man centered and it is, it's gotta be, I mean, that's a challenging thing for a pastor. I have to imagine too, is you do have people who are, especially when they're incredibly gifted and help the church run, it's gotta be hard being like, oh, why are they leaving? You know, or why, you know, or if someone is like someone who's like, oh, they're one of the kindest people in the church, we can't lose them. But it's, you know, it's one thing that was always hammered a lot was faithfulness. And it was always faithfulness to the organization, not the church Mm -hmm. big C. And I think that one of those is very commendable. And I think the other, for some people, that is the path that they're, they're put on. And for others, I think that, like I said, the church should be a launch pad to get them to Mm -hmm. be able to actually go out. I mean, that's the church, right? We're supposed to go out and minister, not just stay and absorb, you know? Um, So as as church leaders recognize that it just becomes easier to, it, the, the the lighter that a church leader holds on to folks, the less likely it is that their culture is going to become very manipulative, very cult-like, you know, very overbearing and stuff. As we just recognize that that's the way the the rhythm of all this works, you know. Yeah. And then, but it takes a, a leader to be like, you know what, that means that maybe I won't be, you know, well, no, I won't be the celebrity pastor. But I don't I don't know that celebrity pastor is a good thing for church mm. culture and for the maturity of spiritual beings. I just, I think it does more maybe damage than it actually helps, you know, right. and stuff. So, you know, anyways. Um, I, I just have two more questions. Kind of we're pretty much near the end of our, our time here, but I, I'm, I, I want to ask you two specific questions. One, I just want to ask you, obviously we deal a lot with abuse and, and that can be physical, mental, a lot of times sexual abuse within the church. And I get mixed answers every time that I talk to someone about their spiritual side. You know, some, I I don't want to ever see a church. I feel like nauseous thinking about going to church. You know, some are still going, but it's really hurting to go or they're in an environment that's not conducive to healing. Um, So I guess what would you say to someone as a pastor from a, from a gospel perspective who has been hurt very deeply within the confines of a church and who is sitting there going like, I don't even know what to do with the spiritual side of my life whatsoever. I don't know how to address that. What, what advice or counsel would you give to them as they kind of try to evaluate that, that side of their life? One thing I would say is probably it's very important for them to get professional counseling and therapy. Um, I, I know a lot of times pastors do some counseling and I think there's a place for some, you know, pastoral counsel, but I don't actually think pastors 
are typically trained to be professional therapists, professional counselors. And I actually do think there's a very real place, uh, even within Christianity, for professional therapy, for professional counseling. And so the first thing I would say is, don't feel bad or feel this sense of shame about going and getting professional counseling. Um, for whatever reason in the IFB culture, there was just almost this stigma that went along with you know, professional therapy and things like that. And so the first thing I would say is just do that and don't feel like it has to be a pastor, especially in a situation where it was a pastor or a spiritual leader that inflicted a lot of that because it won't, you won't be in a mindset or heart posture to be able to receive it. And so I think that would be number one. I think, I guess the second thing I would say is just recognize that not every church culture is the culture that created that abuse. You know, there's tons, there's tons of medical malpractice that happens in the world. You know, I mean, I, I saw a statistic that said either the top one or two leading causes of death at a hospital with all the sickness and disease was physical, you know, it was malpractice. Hmm. Well, we don't stop going to doctors or hospitals because of that malpractice. And I think there is maybe a principle there that, you know, it's so easy when we were so, especially in church cultures that are abusive, they tend to really hold on to those um, victims longer than they should. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times those victims are, have been there for years and years and years and years. And because of that, they don't have a lot of experiences with different churches, uh, with different opportunities. And so what happens is they just project their one experience on all of them. And I would really say, you know, at the point where you're healthy enough and it doesn't totally trigger a pain body every time you step into a building that looks like a church, and you're healthy enough to do so, to be willing to explore outside of maybe your even particular tradition, you know, when it comes to, you know, churches and stuff, because oftentimes, you know, I, and, and this goes to where I'm at now, you know, that there, there might be a place where, you know, a person's not going to the same denomination of church that they went to, you know, when they were experiencing that abuse, you know, maybe it's just too, triggering or there's too many similarities, you know, and it's just not going to serve them. It's not going to help them. And, and so whether or not they're able to completely go back, I would say at least have the mindset that that doesn't allow people to project their one experience on all. And, uh, and yet I understand, you know, from somebody who's been victimized, it's a very difficult thing to do, you know, and stuff. And just as I would imagine for others. So I think one, get the therapy Two, don't see all, you know, churches as being the same. And then thirdly to recognize at the end of the day, because churches are made up of people, the reality is I still haven't, I still haven't found a perfect church. You know, the reality is it's so funny, even as a pastor of a church, there are so many things about our local congregation that are not my preference, that are not things that I would personally do because of the fact that we have a more eclectic, you know, plurality of leadership and stuff. And so at some point, if people want to experience the benefits of a local faith community, 
there is just like in your physical family. I mean, the reality is there's going to be these weird idiosyncrasies you're going to put up with in your physical family in order to experience the familial benefits that come with those long-term relationships. There are benefits, but there are also, you know, costs that go along with it. It's going to be the same thing in a church family as well. I'm not saying put up with abuse. I'm not saying put up with victimization. However, if, 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 if there is anything about a faith community that resonates with you and there's anything within that context that is something that would serve and be healthy and something that you would see as being, man, that would be positive in my life, then just recognize that it's going to come with certain levels of annoyances. It's going to come with certain mm-hmm. levels of things that are a little bit idiosyncratic, you know, just like any long-term relationship has, whether it's a marriage relationship, whether it's a family relationship, it's going to be the same way in a church. And so I think knowing the difference between what's just not a preference and what's actually unhealthy and abusive, that's an important distinction mm, to make. Yeah. Whether it's spiritual abuse or whether it's physical abuse, yes, that, that there's hard lines that need to be drawn. There. Right. Um, but I think what happens sometimes is people want the benefits of faith community, but they're not willing to endure just the idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. of that faith community because they're going to be there. And so I think if somebody's able to process through those three things, then a faith community can be a place that actually can serve their, you know, health and well-being, you know, right. and, um, you know, kind of uh, bring a lot of that, you know, fulfillment that they're looking for in life and, and church and faith community can be a part of that process. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, like you said, there's a distinction between abuse. Like if a church is covering abuse, like get out of that church, you know, but if, if, if it's something where, you know, if it's something where just simply the music isn't your preference, that's not necessarily indicative of the the church being an unhealthy place. It's just a preferential issue. Um, And so I appreciate you delineating between those. Um, and, And lastly, this kind of ties into our whole conversation, but I'm just curious. I ask everybody that comes on the show pretty much, but do you believe yeah. that there is hope for some kind of reform of the IFP movement? Cause there's many that are trying to stay in it and course correct. Yeah. Um, or do you believe it's yeah. something that just needs to, it's going to naturally kind of fade away and there needs to be a new thing in its place. Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess it's all about how you define it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, People will ask me all the time, are, are you in it? Are you not? I, 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 I'm, I'm probably not at this point. I think most people would look at me and say I'm not. Um, and I, but it's, it's what's weird in my head is I've just never made this decision. Like, I'm going to leave this. It's just yeah. I've just been over so many years just been following a direction. And I think just over time, I've kind of ended up away from that. If IFB, if you're talking about cultural IFB, like in the way that it typically gets, you know, framed yet to me, that probably is going to just over time, if it's not already dying, it is. I I just, I, this, this whole, this whole performance-based man-centered standards, you know, kind of philosophy of, Christian movement, I don't see that as being something that is going to survive. Now, some people would say IFB, and they would look at it more from a historic perspective of independent, that is independent churches, you know, fundamental, that means they believe in the fundamentals of the faith, as was, you know, 
dictated in the early 19th century about the, you know, biblical authority, autonomy of the local church, you know, the, uh, you know, deity of Christ, salvation by grace, those fundamentals, you know, type things. If, if that's what somebody means by independent fundamental, yeah, then that version of it probably will yeah. continue to go forward. So it, it's, are we talking about theological IFB movement? Are we talking about this cultural thing that, you know, really kind of was spawned by Jack Hiles yeah. and then a lot of the off branches of that, you know, that version of it, I think is quickly dwindling. I don't honestly, even, you know, um, among the guys that I run with, I, I kind of work alongside of a buddy of mine and we kind of do this thing called the idea network. And it, it's tended over the years just to be a place where a lot of guys who are not wanting to be a part of cultural, IFB, but that was kind of their roots. They're kind of moving out and through that, you know, and past it to a lot of degree. Um, I think anybody under the age of 45 right now is, I would say 90% of guys, even if they grew up in the IFB, they no longer want to be associated with cultural IFBism, if we can call it that. Why? Yeah, yeah, it's just, there's just, there's really, it's like, you know, they talk about throwing baby out with the bathwater. At this point, it's like, man, there's no baby left. You know, a lot just, of bathwater. Yeah. yeah <laughs> bathwater, you know, uh, there's not much worth saving in it. And that's not to say there are not some very good people in it mm-hmm. and, um, um, and, and things, but the, the, the culture has been so driven by values and by, um, worldviews that are just so skewed that it's really hard for anything super healthy to emerge out of it, you know, and that's not to say it help doesn't help some people for a season. Um, I, I think it, you know, you know, I could, I could go in a different direction on that for a little bit, but the reality is, you know, I, I don't, I don't see the Jack Hiles version of IFB, you know, kind of evangelicalism, it, I don't see it lasting much longer than a decade. You know, there will be a few guys who will, will, will remain more traditional in their methodological approach and might call themselves independent and fundamental and Baptist. And there might be a few of those guys, but even those guys will become less, it will become less of a political movement and more just like, you know, a scattered thing here and there. It's that, an identifier that we're unaffiliated and we're Baptistic in doctrine and, and so on. Yeah. So, well, now I got to figure out what to podcast about after these 10 years are up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> right. No, I, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing. And I know that you're in a, in a funny way because you don't broadcast too aggressively about, you know, where you're at. I think, I think that you're somewhat of an enigma to a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of people who um, are just like, who is the bad boy of fundamentalism we see popping up? Who is this guy? And um, so I, I think it's good just to be able to talk. I like, I'm not shocked by a lot of what you said. I mean, I know, I know you and I'm glad that other people get a chance to uh, kind of hear from you as well. Um, beyond just the uh, the old rumor mill, which I know can get no, that's that, no, it's been yeah. really interesting. I've never done a podcast quite like this one. I do a lot, and they tend to kind of just go on more practical realms. So to kind of have to walk down memory lane and kind of live with it, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it, so I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Awesome, awesome. If, if somebody wants to find out more about Fresno Church and maybe connect with you, what's the best route for them to do that? 
Yeah, um, I'm on Facebook, uh, Joshua Ermler. So that's I-R-M-L-E-R. So I'd love to connect there. Um, I will say if there are guys, if you do have guys that are listening and they're kind of deeply entrenched in like an IFB kind of world and they feel like a drawing towards something but are not really ready to make that leap, you know, into total atheism or something along those lines, you know, they, they're looking for something a little bit like midstream on some of this. Uh, the idea network.church is a place where a lot of pastors are finding just a place to kind of come out of that world in, in a way that can be helpful and positive and constructive and give them some real ideas about how to navigate a lot of those things. And uh, we do some, we do different events. So we do a lot of coaching, mentoring and things for guys who are in revitalization, transformation kind of uh, situations, you know, and stuff. And then, you know, even for individuals and stuff that are kind of trying to navigate that and like trying to find churches that, man, they want to stay in church world. And not everybody does. Some people are completely done with it after what they've experienced and what they've gone through. But there are some who are like, man, I still want to stay in it, but I just don't even know how to navigate that. We, we work with a lot of individuals as well, just trying to help them find a place that can be healthy for where they find themselves at a particular season in life. And so you can go to ideanetwork.church to get more information about that organization. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping on and I hope I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.